0: hello and welcome to another episode of impressions of america i'm simon and with me as always is toby hi toby hi simon today we are joined by special guest simon reynolds a music journalist critic and author Simon has wrote extensively about music and pop culture in all forms of media, from books such as Rip It Up and Start Again and Retromania, to articles and publications such as The Guardian, as well as an extensive and wide-ranging blog. Simon is also on Twitter, at SimonRetromania. Hi Simon, thanks very much for joining us on the show. Hi, good to be with you guys. Uh, now, this episode is perhaps a little different for us because uh, normally Toby and I just kind of spend an hour comparing notes on Richard Nixon. Uh, today we are going to branch out a little bit and talk about how uh, music and pop culture pop culture ties into societal changes of the 20th century. Uh, we're going to start by looking at Simon's 2016 book, Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and its Legacy. <laughs> Simon, could you introduce the book and tell us why you decided to write about glam rock?
1: Well, glam rock's the first music I can actually remember as a real time sort of pop phenomenon. I was a, I was about, uh, I think it was nine or, or 10 when it really kicked off in the UK. And um, I didn't know it was called glam rock then. It was just what I thought pop music was, which was these people in bizarre outfits, uh, you know, um, Playing this great music, um, Top of the Pops always used to put this weird effect on the glam groups where they all would go kind of metallic looking and purple and psychedelic. And so that's one thing that I remember, you know, seeing T-Rex or or Bowie or Alice Cooper in this sort of tripped out way. It made a, you know, quite a big impression on me, but I didn't understand any of the cultural politics of it. And then I discovered it later when I became sort of a trainee rock critic, like I was a student, but like, you know, already writing about Music, you um, know, in, in fanzines, I rediscovered it in the 80s and and got really fascinated by it. Both the, the, you know, the sort of the critically approved people like the the Bowie's and the Roxy Music. I particularly was blown away by Roxy Music uh, and Sparks and so like that But I also was me and my friends doing this fanzine um, monitor. We we were obsessed with the more lumpen teenage stuff that was considered not serious music, but we felt had a real kind of uh power to it and like a, a hysteria and ex- extremism even though it was pop music it, you know groups like the Sweet and alice cooper who was hovered somewhere in that zone between the lumpen teen stuff and the the bowie kind of seriously taken stuff uh, we found it really interesting music and so it's a sort of abiding obsession just as music in an era of pop culture what particularly got me interested in it in terms of its cultural politics was Feeling that there was some kind of link between uh, glam and its obsessions with fame and pop music becoming self-reflexive, a commentary on pop itself, that was something that glam kind of invented. Um, You know, a lot of songs by people like David Bowie, Fame, or even someone like David Essex, We're Going to Make You a Star. A lot of songs about fame itself, about stardom. And that seemed to be a big thing in 21st century pop. Um, you know, you had Lady Gaga, you had uh, Kanye and Drake writing. You know, songs about. You know, Drake's whole career is based around albums. You know, his first album is about becoming famous. You know, um, or his first successful album, and uh, and almost like the, the 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 pain and delirium and disorientation of, of being famous. You know, so I got interested in in that connection, and also the feeling that although I liked glam as uh, an era of pop culture I felt there was something fascinating about how um, the culture politics were very much to do with disillusionment decadence of sort of post 60s come down from that feeling that we're going to change the world uh, the, the youth generation is going to change the world and and in the 70s people withdrew from that and uh, they kind of withdrew into fantasy and escapism and a kind of um, accepting of the world as it is you know and i thought that was really fascinating and the fact that i had this you know as sort of you know vaguely left-wing person i had this ambiguous relationship with the music liking it as music and as an era but sort of feeling the the politics of it were suspect in some way uh i thought would be an interesting tension from with in which to write yeah
2: that is particularly interesting because i mean like I've listened to a lot of um, or some glam rock from that period, and I, I I enjoy it as music, but I never really looked and thought about you know sort of the political background of it. So, like, when you think about because you frame this book as you know, glam rock being sort of an indication of the death of the '60s dream, which is a powerful um, you know sort of point to brand the book. Um, how far do you take that um, sort of analysis?
1: Uh Pretty, you know, it's it's a theme running through the whole um, the whole book. In some ways, you know, in some ways, glam is an extension of certain things about the sixties. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I mentioned the you know the trippy light effects that the top of the pops people sort of instinctively seem to put on those the glam groups to play up their artifice and their extremism. But you know, they were quite trippy. To, you know, someone like Mark Bonan had his lyrics had this kind of psychedelic counterculturally thing. Bowie's use of science fiction imagery in a way is not unlike Hendrix's use of science fiction imagery there are continuities, the main continuity is the going even further into sexual libertinism into sort of, you know you know, the, the, sec, the sort of rather well very heterosexual idea of sexual liberation in the 60s uh, you know dope guns and fucking in the street as the MC5 put it, is expanded into a much more um uh mutable and polymorphous uh and sexually wilder kind of freedom by people like bowie where you know he's just, you know it's going beyond the, the sort of rampant heter, heterosexuality and uh, let's sleep with whoever we want in the 60s to you know let's sleep with whatever gender we want you know let's experiment with gender let's you know bowie is 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 trying to push beyond you know, he he's has an obsession with Mick with the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger and his sort of whole thing is how do I go further than Mick Jagger? And his way is to go, you know, into sort of uh, bisexuality and and uh, and even further into the sort of androgyny that the that the stones sort of toyed with where they wore some makeup in some videos and things like that. Uh but there are other aspects where glam is a complete break with the 60s and and one of them is is that it sort of embraces showbiz it embraces the idea that you know rock rock music is actually just a sort of junior form of showbiz. In the 60s, showbiz and and things like, you know, the sort of uh, the 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 triumvirate of Hollywood, Las Vegas and Broadway would be the absolute opposite of what rock was about rock had, had nothing to do with musical theatre had nothing to do with cabaret or you know it was it was all about realness and and um, this sort of idea myth really that that what was happening on stage was actually happening as as reality you know you, you, what you saw on stage was an event so you know the the who smashing the instruments uh, would be a paradigm example of of trying to represent sort of some kind of realness of teenage wildness or anger or ever on stage very you know very much anticipating punk uh and bowie bowie and people like alice cooper and roxy music are saying actually we're just acting on stage it's just a performance we're just a sort of younger version of show business really with different hair and uh slightly more far out clothes but we're, we're 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 playing roles we you know alice cooper brings in all the sort of stage values of, 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 of traditional showbiz, props, choreographed routines, costumes, you know, Bowie does the same. Um, and it's basically saying that what you're seeing on stage is just a fantasy and it doesn't have any power to change the world. And that's the big break with, with, with 60s rock, which was this, you know, a generational belief that, that um, through this, this subversive power of realness enacted through the music, uh, uh, and 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 through this power of youth uniting the world is going to be changed and and that's you know abandoning that belief you know it's literally a disillusionment in a way on the one hand it's a disillusionment uh, of that dream of the 60s on the other hand it's an embrace of illusion of of the idea of artifice of of theatre of of uh what happens on stage as as just showbiz
2: but, i mean uh- This is quite interesting because I feel like when I sort of when I listen to musicians from the 60s, especially when I listen to Bob Dylan, I do get a sense that this is someone who's an activist, you know, who's pushing a social justice message, who's pushing us almost like a a Holden Caulfield message about being real and being authentic and escaping sort of the, the lonely crowd of 50s society and trying to be yourself and trying to be an activist and things like that but in and other other musicians when i listen to other musicians from that period when i listen to hendrix especially when i listen to the beatles beatles there's a lot of artifice it it is a you know sort of packaged product by corporate american in in many ways it it is it and it is acting isn't it or?
1: well i it depends i mean i think when when uh when they started out uh as a rock and roll group, they were very much like uh, wearing the same clothes they were on uh, in real life on stage, like leather jackets and stuff. You know, this is like when they were playing the ca- uh, the Cavern or Hamburg, uh, you know, denim and, and, and you know, then they get in the clutches of uh, their manager, Brian Epson, and he says, we'll put some suits on. So they, they're moving a little bit into showbiz. But one of the things that people um, who were around at the time say about the Beatles is that what was, you know, Their music had this raw energy of rock and roll, which they kind of brought back after a sort of fallow period in the very early 60s when a lot of people thought rock and roll had died. But what was shocking about the Beatles was actually their press conferences and their sarcastic Liverpudlian humour and the irreverence of it. And that felt shockingly real. Because before that, you know, um, even rock and rollers, even people like Elvis Presley or uh, I don't know, Eddie Cochran, they were very polite and very sort of, um, you know, if they were interviewed, they would address the interviewer as sir, uh, you know, and they would, you know, they were like, they, they went along with a kind of showbiz etiquette uh, of the time. And here was people being radically real and irreverent and this humour, uh, you know, using, was like grotty, which was, I think, I don't know if they invented it, but it was like Liverpudlian slang, you know, they had all these sort of, uh, street real kind of aspects about their persona, and that was sort of the, the John Lennon side to a large extent. I think they were all in on that. You know, the, the whole group were sort of very irreverent and sort of real-seeming in their public appearances. But Lennon was the one who was most sort of obsessed with this idea of authenticity, and he sort of returned to it in a very drastic way in the later part of the Beatles and in his solo career, where he was like, uh, I mean, you know, I'm going to strip away all the artifice that we've even let in through the kind of, you know, the psychedelic era and we have to have raw rock and roll. And I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, he, he, he you know, on his first solo album he's talking about being a working class hero. You're all fucking peasants. As far as I can see, you know, the word mm-hmm. fuck alone would be, Like you never heard that on records. That would be like uh, that was proto-punk, in its realness. Um, You know, he's still talking about his mother and and the pain of of losing his mother, and uh, it's like he's into primal scream therapy. So he, you know, Lennon out of all the Beatles would be would have been the most obsessed with realness and authenticity. Um, He was into the primal scream therapy and this idea of you know this purgative release of repression and and cutting down to the raw core of who you were as a human. Okay. This, is, this is 1970, and this is exactly the time when Bowie's going the other way, which is t- to become this fantastical fantasy being. You know, he's on the way to becoming uh, Ziggy Stardust.
2: Yeah, and in, in your book, you, you sort of capture Bowie as a young person in the 60s actually not being very comfortable with this sort of cult of authenticity being much thinking about and him and mark bowman as well sort of reading uh, books about you know sort of uh, 18th and 19th century dandies and, and learning about things like that and not even feeling like they had an authentic self could you um go on into that
1: yeah i mean i think um uh i think what bowie what, what Bowie discovered or realized was that realism in itself you know the, the realism of rock or the supposed naturalism of rock on stage was in in its own way a kind of performance and that you know uh which you see with something like later with a figure like Bruce Springsteen where you know he's you know the image is he's a, a guy from new jersey who's come on stage and uh, but it's it's actually you know a very theatricalized performance as these yeah, routines I mean- with with Springsteen and his, you know, saxophonist and, you know, it's a staged form of realness. So Bo is quite early to realise this and, and and so he says, Well if it's is all if it is all acting, then why don't I really go all the way into sort of Theatricality, uh, and rather than pretending that I'm this natural figure. Well, and anyway, that's an echo of Oscar Wilde's ideas, you know, that, that sincerity is a pose. Sincerity is a pose, and it's the most boring of poses. And and, and uh, um, so it's quite a sophisticated idea. Um, but it is, you know, it's a major break with what people in the 60s believed, which the whole thrust of the 60s really was, was um, let's talk about sex and and fucking in the most graphic way you know uh let's uh you know for whatever you know let's talk about drugs let's talk about um uh, the power structure you know let's uh let you know, even letting your hair grow was sort of a i suppose like a reversion to nature you know let your hair and your your hair grow long and your beard grow uh was sort of like a sort of facial equivalent of honesty or something <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting because like you think about someone like um, Bruce Springsteen, and he's 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 just a New Jersey guy, and then twenty years later, after he's made loads and loads of millions, he's still a New Jersey guy. So there is a,
1: yeah, uh, a honesty think, to it, isn't there? I think there's um there's an honesty I, I, to what
2: Bowie is saying to to some extent. Yes, yeah, so, yeah
1: like this sort of like, and you could also another idea that sort of people who are scholars of camp. Uh, an artifice sort of say is, is that um, through the lie, you can tell the truth. So through a sort of performance persona or invented self, that's your inner truth. So you might, you know, so this sort of fantasy figure that Mark Boland creates for himself, uh, which, he, you know, he calls Mark Boland. Call, uh, well, he calls Mark Boland, his actual real name was Mark Feld. He invents this, he invents an imaginary surname for himself, Boland. Uh, being Mark Boland, uh, is the actualization of this inner self, which is this sort of dandish, uh, elf-like uh, mm. figure who believes in, you know, all this Tolkien-esque stuff, you know, um, that's his true self. And he invents all these myths that are complete bullshit. Like he says, you know, he has a legend about about himself that he lived with a wizard for a while. And he mm. changes the story with every interview, you know, you know. One time he's saying, like, well, I live with these with this wizard and he was a black, black musician and he... That, you know, he killed cats and, you know, and and uh, I, I witness all these diabolic things. Other times it's more like a nice version of that. You know, and he lived, he supposedly lived with this wizard in a chateau. And then another point the story is they live in a tree or something. It's just absolute nonsense. And, uh, but he sort of half believes it. And um, it's all part of this mythos he's building of himself. But it really, you know, I think the idea is that he is refusing what he was born, which was to be, a, you know, he was born a, a, an East, East End, East London, Working class guy uh, in a very drab post-war environment where there are bomb sites and rationing and stuff, and he's like, "No, I'd uh, my true self. If given, you know, if allowed to be my true self, I would be Beau Brummel or you know, like a modern-day dandy, and I would li- I would be hanging out with elves and fairies and <laughs> living in this fantasy world." And so he, he he creates this reality through just through will and force of personality, and eventually becoming a huge pop star he actually creates his own reality and i think that's the essence of glam is um people are moving away from the collective idea that you can change reality and change the world and make a better world to this individual escape routes you know through what is really um you know it's through it's through illusion and also i think through delusion in the end a lot of these people as they enter the world of fame it really you know screws up their perception of what's real and what's not
2: i would also like uh, there's a tangent i would like to go on because in the 60s you do have say especially in new york you have the velvet underground and there was i mean the ideas of peace and love and all of the 60s um sort of pieties they seemed to find quite actually odious and they made music that in many ways Sort of, it was a precursor to punk, but in many ways was not of the 60s era. It, do you feel like the, the Velvet Underground are a precursor to the glam rock of the
1: 1970s? Well, I think it's it's complicated because, uh, on the one hand, they are a huge influence on um, Bowie and, and, and sonically, they're, a, they're a, the common denominator that everyone in Roxy Music likes. And Brian, you know, is particularly fascinated by them sonically, I think. Uh, but uh, and they are associated with Warhol, who is, you know, Warhol's ideas are all to do with artifice and and camp and uh, gender bending and and all all these things, and also fame and and glamour, are, you know, the Warholian obsessions. Uh, and Warhol inserts them into this sort of multimedia thing, the exploding p- plastic, inevitable, where you know it's quite psychedelic. There's all this bombardment of light and stuff, but there is theatrical elements. There's like People come on stage, and I'm playing with a whip, you know. And this sort of, when Venus in Furs plays, there, you know, there's there's a sort of theatricalized representation of of S&M going on on stage. There's, you know, uh, theatricalized, um, you know, a giant syringe. I think is brought on, you know, during heroin. <laughs> uh, uh, but they and themselves are actually pretty dressed down. They, they're dressed in it's much more punk. They're much more like an anticipation of the Ramones. Really, it's you know black leather jackets and dark clothing and and louis lyrics are are brutally realistic you know he's Mm -hmm. much he's not he's it's not like t-rex which is all tolkien and type lyrics and it's not david bowie's sci-fi lyrics it's the street realities of new york it's it's waiting on a on a particular intersection for your dealer to turn up and waiting for your man it's 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 um you know heroin it's uh it's despair and, and loneliness and uh urban realness and his his big inspirations lyrically were people like um the dude who did last exit for uh, selby selby junior uh, last exit from brooklyn it's this sort of very spare stripped down language absolutely trying to be absolutely honest no frills no uh very vernacular very you know conversational you know ultra realistic uh so there are there are almost two things you know two elements going on uh in the velvet underground one is the warholian context and the sort of yeah, as you say, they anticipate the dis you know, they, they, they anticipate the disillusionment. They're actually pre-disillusioned. They, they you know, they, they never had the illusions of the sixties in the first place of you never love they're already too cynical to believe in love and peace and and you know, youth unity to change the world. They they don't go along with that. Uh they have a darker, nihilistic view of things. But um the Warholian sort of surroundings of them are very much an anticipation of of glam, uh, I think, especially the, the, the sort of the, the obsession with glamour and fame uh, is something that um, carries on with, you know, Warhol is obsessed with that, that, all that and that sort of a, the great glam thematics are to do with that and to do, also to do with decadence as well. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned about
0: um, some of the, the difficulties as far as the social and economic scenes of uh, Britain and America during the 70s you think of uh you know the economic um difficulties of britain in the early 70s the recession you think of america with you know vietnam war and uh, watergate and that kind of thing do you, do you think having that sort of uh milieu that that, that kind of sense of, of dread and sense of uh unhappiness across those countries do you think can it be a bedrock for glam rock to kind of establish itself as something as almost like a a lotion to it as something that was an
1: antidote to that depression? Uh, It's complicated you know uh, I think sometimes there are very obvious ways you can index what's going on economically to music but in other ways You can't, like a lot of people, a lot of people who periodize this period say, say, well, the 60s really ended in 1973, because that was when um, the oil crisis happened. And um, that had a, you know, immediate depressing effect on the economy and, you know, made... With fuel being so expensive, it, it, it sort of it, it put the choke on the economy, uh, and, and economically, a lot of the things that were going, you know, that were the mainstay of the '60s. You know, uh, relative affluence and young people being able to get jobs very easily, that kind of carried on more or less, some way into the early '70s. Um, I, I, I think of, um, but yeah, certainly there were there there was a backdrop of conflict and turmoil that people uh might have wanted to run away from you know uh there was the vietnam war and the protests against it there was a lot of strikes uh, and labor strife in the uk um you know uh i can remember growing up with the power cuts you know there's a three-day week where to conserve energy supplies during the minus strike um the economy was actually put on a three-day footing and and the, sometimes the power the tv would go off at 10 o'clock uh you hear the you stories know, about the like
0: business not being collected and that sort of thing it's a little bit before my
1: time that was a bit ha- that, was that was a like, bit later. Was that, a bit later? <laughs> that was actually um that was actually during in 1979 and one of the funny things with documentaries is um often people will Play fast and loose with the chronology. So you often see a documentary on punk that will use footage from the winter of 78, 79, as if the the bins being, you know, the streets being full of rubbish actually was occurring during the forming of punk. Punk actually occurred in a relative lull politically. It was the Labour government. Jim Callaghan was in charge. You know, things were relatively stable uh, for a period. There was a sort of... um, Period when when things uh, you know there weren't as many strikes. It was still a fairly turbulent period, but um, you know d- d- during Glam, you know there were a lot of things like um, uh, power cuts and a, fee- a feeling that Britain was you know declining, uh, and uh, talk dark talk of you know would there be a, a military coup to restore order? You know would there be some would be something? Some, did, would something that similar to what was going on in like Chile happen in uh, in the UK? And and actual stories of people forming private armies and doing manoeuvres in the countryside. You know, these retired brigadiers and and generals actually practicing for when they would have to take over to put these put the unions back in their place and 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 put these bloody student militants back in their place. So it was a lot of there was a lot of uh, polarisation and a lot of feeling of, of the uk in particular sliding going from uh being you know uh, going from being this sort of major world power to uh a banana republic or something like that you know um just in in decline economically in terms of the social fabric in terms of its place in the world um you know so there's a lot of anxieties there was also ecological anxieties which um which i think um Informed the feeling of, uh, you know, worries about pollution and overpopulation and species going extinct and and uh, the British countryside being despoiled. Yeah, there was there was a lot of sort of feeling uh, terrorism as well. Was you know, so it was certainly a lot to run away from, a lot to hide in in glossy fantastical pop music from.
0: Hello, Simon here. we had some technical issues with Toby dropping off the call due to his uh, computer freezing. Um, we managed to get him back. You'll be glad to hear. Um, so what you hear now is Simon just explaining to Toby where we got up to, and we're about to
1: speak about Ziggy Stardust. Actually, leading, leading. I was just uh, the last things I was saying was about was about the ecological um, fears as well. You know, it was like political strife and economic problems but there's also you know a lot of worries about the environment and so that would lead into five years wouldn't it i think because that's about yeah,
2: yeah.
1: a future where there's resource depletion or something and uh uh which was which was was a theme actually in a lot of science fiction at that time pushing through the
0: market square so many mothers sighing. Had just come over we had 5 years left to
1: there's a book uh called make room make room by uh harry harrison which was then made into the movie Soylent green uh, the book is so much better than the movie i recommend it very highly uh but it's set in a in a near future like the end of the century end of the millennium 1999 where the world is overpopulated and um, resources are very depleted and, and, you know, there's no, um, there's no plastics anymore because there aren't enough fossil fuels to make plastics out of. Um, Everyone has most of the population is um, eating krill burgers made out of krill from the sea or lentil burgers. And uh, meat is like a cost of fortune and butchers have like armed guards on them. And, um, but uh, you know, Bowie actually did a song on his first album that was, I think, loosely inspired by that book. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's it's based set in a grossly overpopulated future. And then five years, it's sort of return, returning to that kind of dystopian view that um, everything, you know, time is running out and everything is um, uh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, everything's. the the planet is being ruined and and humanity has no future. And that was, you know, that was a common, quite a widespread feeling that uh, everything was collapsing socially, but also in terms of the ecosystem. Uh, Humans were ruining the world and and, uh, all these mountain problems were going to just cause everything to collapse. And um, so that, that sort of extreme pessimism informs a lot of glam, I think, and particularly the song Five Years and and the sort of scenario of uh, the Siggy Stardust album.
2: Do you think this extreme pessimism led to a nihilism in glam? Because a lot of glam is about, you know, being a star and, and being someone else, but is there, a, is there also a nihilism in glam? Because I, I remember that David Bowie watched the Clockwork work Orange and was, he was incredibly sort of thrilled by it and sort of it fed into some of his thinking and and you could see that nihilism and shock in in Alice Cooper and, and a lot of the staging that they that they did as well is is that part of the the legacy
1: I think you know I think one of the things with you know um, uh, with the darker kinds of science fiction um, is they are exciting. I mean, you know, in a way, their uto- their utopianism turned inside out. It's it's mm-hmm. a, a, it's a radically transformed landscape that is imagined. Whether it's something like Hunger Games or or it's um, uh, I don't know. Uh, yes, a Clockwork Orange it's, it's a world that is is very different and uh, it's, it's, especially with catastrophe uh, science fiction there's something sort of darkly exhilarating about the idea of being thrown into this, you know, this, this ruined world or this world where half most of the population has died, as in the TV series, the BBC TV series, um, The Survivors, which was a huge uh, show in in the, in the UK in the 70s about a world where a, a contagion has escaped from a biological war for laboratory and 99.9% of the population has died. And... Um, I mean, I remember as a kid, like being very excited about this idea of being like one of the only survivors, and you know, you you'd, you'd uh, the world would be a, a zone of adventure. It's, you know, it's a very, you know, you're, 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 you're sort of ignoring the fact that many people have died in agony, but imagining this world that's sort of exhilaratingly different, and 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 the freedom you'd have, and and the and the risk and the adventure, you know. So I think um, there is a dark exhilaration to dystopian fiction. Uh, and it's a sort of perverse variant of utopianism in a way, the, the dream of a world that's upside down, radically changed. I think in some ways it's a sort of siphoning off of radical aspiration from the real world into, into fantasy. Uh, this, you, hmm, right. Like instead, instead of actually sort of working to change the world and becoming like a revolutionary or a, you know, something like that, you're actually just dreaming of, of a changed world, through science fiction.
2: Yeah, many yeah. people, many many people in the seventies sort of retreated from the world into different kinds of um, self-help things, est, things like that. And in many ways, it does seem like glam rock was, like that for for people.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, the, the new age movement and the and the sort of uh, the sort of uh, fixing your own consciousness kind of thing was one form of early seventies retreat. Yeah, um, human potential. Human potential, human potential yeah. movement. Um, uh, and then another kind was the sort of glam route, which was much more like, um, well. We're not all going to make it, but some of us can make it as, as stars and live our mm-hmm. fantasy, fantasies and our dreams through being f- famous. I think Roxy Music was a good example of that. Like, um, you know, the interviews with the band, if you read Music Press interviews with Roxy Music, the interviewer always mentions the band are staying in a four-star hotel, they're drinking champagne in the, while, while we're doing the interview, uh, and the Roxy Music fans would come to the shows dressed up, you know, in all kinds of uh clothes that sort of related to sort of actually quite retro ideas of hollywood glamour often uh but with a fantastical twist and so you know the fans would live it out through fantasy by going to roxy music performances dressed up for this sort of elegance and chic but roxy themselves uh, as presented you know through the interviews and through the album artwork were living the fantasy for real and then, then a whole generation of people tried to be like Roxy music no, groups like Duran Duran uh, you know uh, ABC all these sort of early 80s groups they actually were sort of the children of Roxy and Bowie uh, and and trying to uh, you know the dream was to be sort of like an, an art rock star and to sort of live this exquisite lifestyle of of going to uh, fashion runway shows and art gallery openings and and just having a whole life Devoted to aesthetics, you know that was the sort of, uh, but it was an individualized escape route, I think.
2: Fascinating. And you think that in this period you're seeing, you know, glam and glitter and um, es- sort of escapism. Do you think that's sort of reflected in the the civil rights movement that um, gay people were having in in this in this period? Because. I mean, there is this bleakness, but then there's also this the fact that, you know, in the 70s or in, this, in the 60s in Britain, you're seeing a sort of effete uh, uh, young men who don't want to sort of um, reflect the sort of generic um, masculine masculine archetypes and, and want to be something else. And you feel like Bowie, I, I think some music critics even said that Bowie was the first sort of authentically gay superstar, you know?
1: Yeah, that was sort of how he presented, and and to, to some to some extent, it was a an image or a performance that he did. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say a, a publicity gimmick, although he did use it to sort of kickstart his career. This de- declaration that he was gay, even as he was married and had a small child. Mm. Um, so, uh, but you know, I think he, the, the reality was he did experiment uh, sexually uh, and uh, had bisexual adventures. But um, he made a kind of public performance of of being gayness. I think as sort uh, in a, in a very culturally potent way, and it was both intended by him and received, I think, as well. This is the next. This is a quantum leap on from the libertines of the 60s. You know, you had all these sexually charismatic uh, figures like Mick Jagger, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, well, where would you go next? Well, the next step is to have uh, have a sort of uh, a superstar who declares himself to be gay or at other points pansexual, you know. Um, and I think it, it did, you know, it was received as, as, as enormously liberating by a lot of uh, gay people who were emerging into their sexuality. It was also liberating, I think, for uh, men who weren't gay but who fancied having a more fluid idea of sexuality, uh, a more a softer style of of manhood. Uh, and I think it was also liberating for a certain kind of female fan as well who didn't particularly, wasn't drawn to, wasn't attracted to rugged, you know, rugged masculinity or macho masculinity, like this idea of these exquisite, uh, a man who actually wore makeup, who, who, who groomed themselves, who... Paid attention to their appearance. Who was gentle? Who was you know that 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 was enormously attractive, and in, and again a sort of extension of of the kind of androgynous figures of the sixties, the 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 Sid Barrett's and the Ray Davies and 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 the Beatles too with their with their long hair. You know, it was like you know, even further. There was a sixties androgyny, and then this was the next step into a kind of radical uh, polymorphous. Gentleness, I think, that was attractive to you know, actually gay people, men who were felt trapped in a macho, and then women who wanted something different to you know, desire
2: in in the reads the transformer. There's this idea that you know, people can come to the city and change themselves. It's also the the idea that authenticity or the, the authenticity that they had is sort of provincial people ends when they come into sort of the urban space in the, in the 1970s, do you, do you feel that glam provided a freedom for even people who wanted not only to be gay or wanted to be, um, sort of, or dressed in a family, but actually wanted to be a different gender entirely?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that was some, that was something that was on the sort of spectrum of things that, um, uh that was sort of talked about you know uh and certainly that's that's going on on the on the artwork of the transformer album where you have the same person uh, in the same image presented as both very very feminine and then a very masculine it's the same person yeah, clearly dressed uh there's ideas on the album of, of gender is mutable and optional and, and, and you can you can take it on and off and it's to do with clothing and accoutrements and wigs and, and makeup, uh, it doesn't adhere to you and, and it's something you can pick and choose with. And then you also had a figure um, like uh, Wayne County now, now known as Jane County who was uh, an actual transgender rock star and was, you know uh, got was on the front cover of Melody maker the big music paper at the time was part of the dave Bowie's management group um main man and it looked set to be like an actual transgender rock star it never happened the album was never recorded there's some mystery as to why that as to why that happened but you know th- this was a, a, a an actually trans performer uh, who was on the the road to being like a rock, a rock star so it was it was it was It was an interesting time. Um, You know, you also had things like the Kinks' Lola, which, you know, was a a huge anthem on both sides of the Atlantic about a romance uh, between a guy and um, what seems to be uh, a a transgender person. It's left very deliciously ambiguous in the song. But uh, the idea is that uh, the character played by Ray Davis doesn't care about the genital reality of this person he, he just is in love with this lola uh, and loves the artifice of lola as much as as uh, the person underneath it and um so that was a very sort of saucy cheeky daring song at its time but it was embraced by loads of people loads of people you know loads of quite straight people sang happily along to this chorus uh in the song lola um uh so it was a, it was a time when the boundaries of things were being stretched in in all these different directions
2: um well just on this question, I just wanted to go if is if the the characterization of of femininity that glam sort of pushed was it is it just because you you see glam and you see like that, that kind of femininity does it necessarily restrict what a female or what a female can be in in many ways is there's a sort of conservatism to to that way of um sort of
1: portraying femininity well i think i think there's you know i I feel like glam and the women's movement at that time do not have there isn't really a dialogue there and i think what what the women's liberation movement was about was radically at odds with what glam was about Uh, you know women's liberation movement is very much about those '60s ideas of authenticity, and so at the very moment, you know, uh, you know, in 1968 or 69, at the at the, I can't remember which year it is, but there's the there's the Miss America pageant. Radical feminists, uh, uh, this group called New York Radical Women, uh, are throwing, you know, they have this thing called the Freedom Trash Can. And they throw makeup and uh, and bras and all these sort of things they feel oppressive. All the accoutrements of traditional female glamour—they throw them in the bin and they and they set fire to them. Uh, and you know they're picketing, um, they're picketing um, beauty pageants. They're they're rebelling against conventional ideas of of femininity, but also to the very idea that that of the of the tremendous store set in appearance and this pressure on women to look a particular way. Uh, and they're campaigning, you know. Uh, for women to have careers and, and all this other stuff So glam in that sense is retrogressive because glam glam is holding up particularly with Roxy music a lot of their ideas of what are glamorous are are retro glamour you know Eno you know, is wearing feathers and and, and and which are like what what was worn in the 1930s by people like Marlena Dietrich um Brian Ferry says some some shockingly uh, anti-feminist, comments at that time where he talks about you know he has no no interest in women's liberation he's probably more interested in domination to be frank he says Mm. uh you know he says he hates these people picketing beauty pageants and he thinks um he thinks you know he's very into the fashion world and models you know they put they put these uh, gorgeous very glammed up artificial looking women on their on their album covers you know which uh is a, you know, from one viewpoint, is a very clever, witty, postmodern thing to do. But from a fairness point of view, or women's liberation movement point of view, is pretty suspect. You know, you have these um, women as sexual objects, as unrealistic glamour icons on the front of these ab- albums. Uh, so the sexual politics of glam, on the one hand, is quite liberating in terms of uh, male... Uh, Opening up and male loosening of the fetters of traditional masculinity, but whether it worked so well for women, uh, I don't know. Some women loved it. You know, there were a lot of people who loved dressing up and loved, you know, loved um, loved glamming up and going to see Roxy music shows. But I, I think uh, probably, probably your sort of uh, your more hardcore radical feminist at that time would have felt it was retrograde. They would have been into you know authenticity and um you know singer songwriters probably you know if you look at what a magazine like spare rib the kind of music they're covering it's it's more or less protest singers and, and singer songwriters singing confessional lyrics about their lives
0: before we finish up uh, on glam rock i just had one more question talking about kind of the transformation of, of david bowie as far as his different kind of archetypes uh, that sort of thing with 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 Bowie in '76, I believe it was when he was started to introduce the Thin White Duke and started to make controversial remarks towards Adolf Hitler in a Playboy interview with regards to him being like an original rock star and rock stars having to be fascists. I was just wondering what what your thought on the sort of evolution of the the pop star in media is concerned. You, you talked about the Beatles and how they were able to take the kind of you know, yes, thank you, sir. Thank you for letting us perform, sir, to the kind of more Liverpoolian, relaxed atmosphere. And then, you know, ten years later on, you've got David Bowie giving interviews to Playboy magazine. You know, sort of semi-praising Hitler. Uh, <laughs> how how do you how do you how, how do you how do you kind of how do you think you can sort of summarize the transformation we saw from that sort of '60s still quite professional era to '70s? You know, Hitler wasn't all a bad guy kind of thing. How how would you summarize
1: that that transformation? Well, there's a lot of things going on. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, there's this structural thing going on with the rock industry where you know you're getting arena shows and stadium shows, and, and very quickly people are starting to say the energy at some of these shows. It's not, and it's not just Bowie's noticing. You know, uh, rock critics are saying of performers of shows by Led Zeppelin or people like that. It's it's a bit Nuremberg Rally-ish, you know, the energy. You've got these mobs of of people who are uh, loosened up by uh, alcohol and taking downers, Quaaludes, you know, these sort of barbiturates, these sort of drugs that loosen you up and disinhibit you. And there's a sort of mob-like quasi-fascistic atmosphere at some of them, Uh, a a potentially dark energy. Uh, You have, uh, um, I think in the case of... Bowie, there's a there's a lot of things going on. Um, you know, there's cocaine, obviously. There's ill digested Nietzsche that he's read <laughs> um, a few years earlier. Um, uh, the concepts of the Superman and and uh, self overcoming and and you know he's always had an obsession with being heroic, of being uh, being larger than himself, of, of feeling in himself quite puny and insignificant, and some kind of heroic other self. And I think you know, so Nietzsche's in there, probably poorly understood or poorly digested but also I think that Bowie is bringing out uh, what I think is this kind of authoritarianism within showbiz Um, uh, the relationship in showbiz is of uh, you know the star is up there dominating the audience in some way and the audience are are like punters paying punters um, and they're there to be blown away and spellbound by this figure who has a kind of quite commanding, you know, commands the stage. Um, and Boe was really into that idea. It's very different from the 60s counterculture idea where the, the people on stage, while they're heroes, they are also representatives of the community. And the, and then, you know, the underground idea is that the people on the stage and the people on the audience are one. Um, and one example of this actually, is is the Doors where, uh, you know, Jim Morrison in, in some ways is quite like Bowie. is a sexually magnetic, charismatic figure, an ego absolute egomaniac. But all the song, a lot of the songs in the Doors are about we. You know, like um, when the music's over, you know, he says, "We want." I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> although I have the same vocal range as Jim Morrison. Uh, uh, he says, "We want the world, and we want it now." You know, and then Shamans Blue, uh, Shaman Shamans Blues, uh, another song where he's uh, addressing the 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 Doors following and the whole counterculture. He's saying, "There will never be another one like you. There will never be another one that can do the things you can do." Uh, and then he says, "Please remember, we were together." So it's this this we, this revolutionary gener- generation. He is the Shaman. Shamans Blues. It's it, you know, he's the leader who's unlocking this potential this power of the youth generation but it comes again 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 in their songs five to one um you know they've got the guns we've got the numbers it's youth versus the power structure do it you know please listen to me children you are the ones who will rule the world it's this idea that this this generation in time is going to take over and change the world um so it's the uh, but with glam it's much more like uh, i'm your leader uh, i'm your fuhrer and i think Bowie, in between the cocaine and the and the, the the kind of concerts he was doing, these huge concerts and and the the, and the Nietzsche in his system and his own very individualistic mindset is starting to get into this thing of seeing the parallels. You know, you, you starts saying like during Ziggy Stardust, I could feel like I could tell people to do anything, and they would obey me. Um, uh, he's he's seeing how much power a rock star could have. And I think he's also—it's uh, very weird because, on like, within a few years of talking about himself as being decadent and him and Lou Reed as being part of the decline of society, at the height of these sort of pro-Hitler or I would have made a very good Hitler comments he's making—he um, uh, is saying, well, actually, we need to crack down on the permissive society and all this 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 sort of depraved behavior, and you know, it needs to be a clean-up. You know, it's not like a few comments; it's like a twelve. 12- something like 12 different interviews where he talks about a need for some kind of crackdown, a need for some kind of cleaning up of society, a need for a strong leader. Uh, He's predicting that some kind of Hitler will come out of the West. Uh, And then another interview says that I would make a very good strong leader. I'd like to be the I'd like to be, you know, he goes from saying I'd like to be the ruler of Britain to I'd like to be the president of the USA, and then I think he even says I'd like to rule the world. <laughs> you know, he was taking a hell of a lot of cocaine at, at that time. But it's a, it's a, it's a completely different um, vibe to how people thought in the 60s, where it was like uh, much more communistic or collective, and, and and the whole, you know, we as a youth generation are going to change the world. Now it's this sort of darker, more twisted idea of the power of music and the power of performance i think to spellbind the masses
2: so simon
1: that was a long reply no, was.
2: <laughs> <laughs> excellent so, so simon when you look at i know you have obviously a great relationship with uh, glam rock you started watching top of the pops when you were very weakly high and but do you feel or is it possible to make the claim that you look at the 1960s, right? you look at the the sex, the the drugs, the authenticity. Is it possible to look at the 60s and then to say that actually capitalism flanked all of these movements these, and then took some of them, took parts of them, and then ended up, and then you end up with glam rock and, the, and you end up with a society that's, that's the same, but with you know, some of the more um i think decadent parts of the 60s movement being expressed in other parts of pop culture
1: yeah i mean i think what happened was um uh a lot of the the constraints on people's private behavior were overturned in the 60s so you have the legalization of homosexuality in britain i think was 67 or 68 you have Divorce laws are liberated. You have the the pill. Obviously, um, you have a lot of people shacking. You know, there was a whole thing in the sense of shacking up was a, was a people living together before they were married. Um, uh, so there's a whole load of societal changes. Um, actually, in the seventies, in the eighties, there was the whole "Don't say no, uh, just say no." Crackdown on drugs in the seventies. Drugs were actually liberalised in in a lot of America and 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 virtually decriminalised. And there were there were like sort of uh, cultural, you know, shops would spring up selling drug paraphernalia, uh, bongs and things. Um, you had movies like the um, damn it, I'm forgetting their name, uh, Cheech and Chong movies. Mainstream movies are about all about smoking pot. Uh, there was a quite a lot of, of of relaxing about even attitudes to drugs in the 70s in, in America. Um, so a lot of sort of lifestyle elements of the counterculture were assimilated. Um, and there were the beginnings of what's sort of finally coming around in in America now, which is a whole industry springing up, a commercial industry to sell pots and pot-related products, uh, you know, that's going to be – Massive in the in the following years um, and a huge source of taxable income. So that was already that was sort of starting to happen in the in the in the seventies. You had the new age movement where some of the spirituality was it was becoming was you know you mentioned est there was like meditation and T, you know T M and all these sort of yoga you know the all these the, the sort of private forms of spiritual social experimentation uh and even a certain degree of experimentation with family structures people were living in uh, there was experimentation living in communes and things like that that was sort of happening being allowed but the actual stopping the war machine uh radically changing society uh d- you know that kind of was separated off and, and kind of thwarted you know uh it's true the vietnam war ended but essentially um you know uh, things carried on. The, the essential larger power structure was not challenged. Certain aspects of the demand, the demands in the 60s to do with sexual freedom and and, and pleasure, you know, were assimilated, allowed and to some extent uh, turned into new capitalist industries.
0: In the opening of Shock and All, you, you mentioned the influence that Experience music, uh, experiencing music through watching kids' TV and Top of the Pops had on you as a child. What are your thoughts on how music and entertainment is consumed today, especially by younger viewers?
1: Well, um, you know, uh, it seemed, judge, you know, ju- judging, from, I actually wrote a piece recently about YouTube for an academic book, and I, and I thought um, I do, I'd invent a genre called Narrow Sociology it's basically entirely based on uh, what's going on in my own family and my two kids and how they used. um, That
2: sounds like my diary. (laughs) diary.
1: Yeah. It was like, you know, um, how my, my, my two kids both use YouTube and the internet uh, to participate in music. So a lot of what I think is going on is based on seeing that really. And then it does, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to have much to do with television as such, but it does in the sense that YouTube is a kind of television, but, it, you know, how people move through it is, is is very different from, you know, tuning in every week excitedly to watch Top of the Pops and getting this odd mix of um, very middle-of-the-road bland stuff and then something exciting that you felt was your music, whether it was punk and new wave or, a, you know, in the 90s, a, a rave song, you know, uh, radically disrupting the show, uh, it's, 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 it's much more different. People navigate it in a completely much more freeform way. And they discover things uh, through drift and, and through, uh, you know, algorithms guide them to things and all they just, you know, rumors of things. Um, but it does, it does seem like pop music is, is pretty audio vi- visual. My, my 13 year old child spends a lot of time watching uh, music, uh, as well as listening to it, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and, and what the video, the video element of it is recede at the same time as the audio element. And, uh, it seems pretty inextricable. And that seems to be something going on on a lot of levels, even with like kind of electronic music that I follow experimental stuff. A lot of the time it's inseparable from, from, uh, interesting visuals you know and that, that that seems to reach a new peak of intensity i think there was a period in the 2000s when because mtv and things like that had kind of um had just switched entirely to reality tv that the video as art form kind of seemed to decline a bit it had been a real big thing in the 90s and you had incredibly expensive and elaborate videos and really interesting videos done by people like uh Hybe williams did these amazing videos for people like Buster Rhymes and and and, uh, and Missy Elliott and people like that yeah and uh, and then then budgets dropped and and just because there weren't many places to show them but then it seemed to resurge uh, and people like Lady Gaga kind of rode it and then you've got the video the rise of the video album with Beyonce and uh, and people like that so look, look at like this
0: is America you know
1: th- that sort of
0: yeah it, it seems as if the video was as much part of the Exhibition of it as just you know putting the song out itself.
1: Conversely, though, another thing that's happening that is sort of the opposite of that is is streaming and what I think of as a kind of almost amb- ambientization of of music, where you just have it on and it drifts into the background and and um, it's almost like this kind of numbing music that you sort of that you sort of semi chosen, but if you, especially if you let the algorithm guide you, then it kind of drifts along. Uh, it's like a, it's like radio, but slightly more chosen.
2: Wait, Simon, do, do you think
1: that that because you you mentioned narrow sociology, like,
2: do you think that this the algorithms, like when you go on YouTube and you are sampling different music, do you think the algorithms are creating subcultures in the way that they used to do? Because I can imagine, like you, you would like a type of music, like back in the day, you might. Also, like a type of clothing, and then that, that might need lead you down a narrow path into a particular group do you do you think it's creating uh sort of patchwork of subcultures like it did before, or is it different I don't
1: know i mean uh, every so often like the Guardian will have a feature, but you know whatever happened to the subcultures, and you'll get a writer, someone like put off my age sort of saying oh when i was a when I was a lad, you know you were scared to go on the streets, and there were all these warring I remember going to I remember going to gigs my first gigs I went to which was 79 80 at this place called Friars Aylesbury um which is a sort of legendary rock club in fact Bowie's Bowie uh, it's supposed to be when he played and did Ziggy Starter so was supposed to be a critical point in his rise to fame um I would go there and, and uh when you went in they gave you these leaflets or these bits of paper saying, you know, please don't fight. Cause there were so many fights at gigs between skinheads and rockabillies and, and punks. And, you know, uh, it was a thing that you remember. And, um, it does seem like that kind of thing has declined except for that. There are these attacks every so often on emos or goths. They seem to be one of the last survivors of the, of the marking yourself out sartorially, uh, through styles as identity, and then also as magnets for aggression, and they often seem to be attacked by, um, by sort of non-aligned youth, people who don't have an identity but have a lot of anger and and are and also affronted by the, you know, the the, the, the sort of uh, the look of emos or looks of goth So you, you hear these horrible stories of of, uh, of people being badly beaten up, um, but it doesn't see, it, it doesn't seem like it that you have um uh, there it's still you know metal is still like a recognizable subculture, sonically i think uh, sartorially i think you know you can sort of see a, a metal yeah look. but
2: i i think like a lot of metalheads are they tend to be older don't they they tend to be gen x's
1: uh, you could be right i don't know i mean i from what i gathered some of the may, the last surviving and flourishing magazines uh like print and paper Music magazines are the metal ones, and, and it was appeared when uh, you know Kerrang! and Metal Hammer overtook the enemy, you know, a few years ago. Uh, so they have, a very, they have a very loyal following. I don't know if uh, to what extent it's being renewed by Young Blood, uh, mm-hmm. but I th- it seems like a pretty strong surviving subculture metal. It's quite different from metal when I was when I was a, a boy. Uh, one of the interesting things about metal is that um, the, the imagery of metal is all war and violence. Uh, a lot, a lot of the time, a lot of the imagery. But actually, metalheads when I was growing up were not people you would cross the street to avoid. They, you, they look, you know, they had a look and they were defined subculture. But they were like somehow they were. You knew they weren't going to harm you, whereas you weren't confident about that with other subcultures at that time. Uh, and it seemed like all the all the violence uh, or the aggression or whatever was was released symbolically through this sort of dark aggressive music, with its military imagery. Um, but uh, the most dangerous kids actually were the people who didn't have a subcultural identity. They were the ones they, they were the ones who didn't have a sort of symbolic code through which to uh, dramatise or allegorize their feelings of alienation
2: do you think this lack of uh, subcultures speaks to a, I think bubbling under the surface a lack of creativity and in, in contemporary life for
1: um i don't know i think it's just uh it's more just that conditions have changed i mean i think people there are a lot of people who are interested in clothes and style but they probably have a more provisional pick a mix approach to clothing and and they might sort of dress like something completely different on a different day uh or they might have or they might you know like rock the rockabilly look but not necessarily have an interest in rockabilly as a music you know so there's a sort of uh disalignment maybe of 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 uh clothing symbols from other markers and 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 you can't necessarily you can't necessarily if you see someone dressed in a quiff and and classic uh, rockabilly clothes—you uh, can't necessarily assume that they're into uh, Eddie Cochran or even some contemporary rockabilly-influenced group. I don't think. Um, and and also, you can't necessarily assume they'll be wearing the same clothes the next week. You know, so I think there's a bit more fluidity. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I think like sexuality seems to be like a very like a, like almost like the subcultures nowadays. Like people are very invested in. Being queer or gender non-conforming or, or uh, uh, or trans or you know, whatever fraction of that, and that's almost um, that almost cuts across music, I think, in lots of ways. Uh, and you you might like different kinds of music that all have some kind of lyrically have or emotionally or mood-wise have some relation to that sexual subjectivity. Um, but uh, it's it, it seems a lot more fragmented the whole culture scape of youth culture I, w- I wouldn't want to attribute it to lack of creativity i think perhaps it's more that people have other f- many forms of release many forms of of gathering you know uh whereas a lot of the products that produced these very defined subcultures were were you know were absolutely were you, you can't imagine how sensorially and culturally deprived life was in the 60s and 70s you know we, we only see the bits that are colorful you know we see the archive of popular culture and you think everyone was swinging or grooving or glamming but you know most of everyday life was was utterly drab and bleak and <laughs> depressing so there was to, to escape it into a tribal identity was was much more alluring i think
0: um mm. i had one final question for you simon toby i, I don't know if you've got uh, any final questions you want to ask before we wrap this up
2: um well, I think we've sort of touched on it already with when you talked about Barry and, and Trump. But do do you feel like the PR aspects of glam rock have been adopted by politicians and political campaigns in any way?
1: Um, not directly, but I think I think there are parallels. I mean that you know, in some ways, it all you know it goes back to. Um, you'll edit this out. I'm trying to remember his name. What's the guy in the, in the 19th century, the, the circus guy, they made a movie about him. Bar, Barnum, P.T. Barnum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it goes back to, you know, in some ways the precursor of all of it, of Trump, of what the rock and roll managers, like, um, uh, um you know, uh my, my brain is seizing. up. I'm trying, I, I, I What's the name of the guy who's Bowie's manager? Um, shit, is it? It's
2: not Ronson, is it? It's, it's, uh, it's um, Epstein.
1: Uh, the the oh yeah, um, uh, shit. Uh, no no, it's um, Tony DeFreeze I'll start again. Uh, in some ways, the uh, Tony DeFries, Yeah. Um, so in some ways, the precursor to you know all this stuff, whether it's what Trump does uh, or whether it's great rock and roll managers like Shep Gordon with Alice uh, Cooper or Tony DeFries with um, with Bowie or, or uh, earlier with, you know, Andrew Lugo, Olman and the Stones. Uh, in some ways, the precursor to all is P.T. Barnum, who's the guy who invents sort of modern publicity stunts and, and sort of, uh, you know, using bullshit really to sort of get attention from people and drive people to his his, his shows. Um but in 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 um, in, in glam, there, you know, there's a sort of feeling like uh, it's sort of, sort of like fake it till you make it, or if you if you if you present an image, then the image becomes reality. So when when, when Tony De is trying to break Bowie in America, he's pretty unknown. There's a bit of interest in the rock magazines, but you know he's pretty unknown. But they they make sure that he goes everywhere in you know, a Rolls Royce. He has bodyguards, even though he doesn't need bodyguards. No one is kind of mobbing him. And 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 the idea is to create the illusion that he's a superstar. And then gradually it, it sort of helps to make him into a, a superstar in America. And so, you know, Trump is doing the, the same kind of techniques, I think, uh, hypnotizing his audience and hypnotizing himself in a way to believe this stuff, you know, to um, uh, it's it's very much like um, and 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 I guess what the rock publicists and man managers and also grasp pretty early is that um, you know not only is there no such thing as bad publicity but that you you should uh, you should actually actively make bad publicity. So um, Andrew Luke Olden with the Stones, you know, would would propagate st- stories in the tabloids about naughty things the Stones had done and. And, and stories like, you know, would you let your daughter go with a rolling stone, you know, to, to make them seem like it's bad boys. And people like Alice Cooper and and, uh, but Bowie did the same thing. Alice, you know, Alice Cooper had this thing where uh, there was some incident on stage where a, a chicken got thrown on stage and he threw it into the audience. But, you know, the story... and it it got torn to pieces because no one realized it was actually a living thing. But the story grew and grew until it was like, um, that he'd bitten the head off it or, you know, drunk its blood or something. And, uh, Frank Zappa, who was involved with the band at that point, actually phoned them up and said something like, whatever you do, don't, don't deny the story that, uh, you know, he grasped that, you know, this was, was going to burnish the myth of Alice Cooper as this demonic, you know, dark, satanic figure uh so uh was it a bit like a certain emperor,
0: emperor norton sort of talked into existence sort of thing where you could almost you could become yeah. that thing simply by creating it yourself
1: yeah yeah very much yeah and i think it relates to um a, a, a technique uh, that you get in positive thinking but also and an in self-help culture um but also in people who want to be famous, it's almost like a showbiz technique, which is, you know, you, 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 you think yourself to be a star and then you become one, you know, you, you start, you know, it's like, the, like the power poses you're supposed to do in front of a mirror, um, which is something that Trump did in his business dealing, you know, he, mm-hmm. he oh, yeah, he calls it like something like truth. Um, Trump calls it something like truthful hyperbole. Um which is a contradiction in terms, but what what did the I think the idea behind it is that you know by pretending it it actually becomes real. and so he'd use this sort of theatrical uh, acting out of decisiveness and 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 uh, in his deals and his contract making, uh, a bit of braggadocio and a bit of um, uh, performance to it. but you know then he would do that on TV where he was acting out this sort of sort of pretend boss on uh, The Apprentice, you know, and uh, being super decisive and, you know, a lot of it was edited together to make it seem more impressive than it actually was, apparently. Um, And then, so people think he's actually, you know, he's actually, that's the reality of how he he would be as a leader, you know, running the country, like like on the show. Supposedly, I think in some country, uh, right now someone has been elected... An actor has been elected. I think it's the Ukraine has been uh, a, but, but he was, he was, he played a president on TV <laughs> that, left people convinced that he would be a good president. And, um, you know, it, it's funny how this, well, but you know, it, I mean, it happened that was with on the card, Schwarzenegger, right? you know, it happened with Schwarzenegger, yeah, the yeah. California, uh, yeah. Um, I think so, um, three members of
2: the at the cast of Predator became politicians, which <laughs> is very telling.
1: So there's yeah, there's that bleed through from the from image into uh, into reality or what people think they're going to be like in, in reality. Um, so you know, I'm, but but uh, I suppose one thing is interesting is that is and it relates to what we're talking about Hitler. Is this you know? Bowie was obsessed with Goebbels. And there is a thing where they're they're all the same thing, really. PR, public relations, state propaganda, advertising, which Bowie was involved in before he was a musician. He was Mm -hmm. involved in um, the advertising world, was fascinated by advertising. Uh, You know, party politics, they're all the same thing. They're all, you know, creating a narrative, spinning spinning the optics, you know, presenting a distortion of what's actually truth. Uh, Reality is messy and and confusing and and ambiguous, and you're creating a stronger, starker uh, version of it, uh, and then actually creating a fiction or a myth of yourself. And these myths then go on to have, uh, you know, world actually reality-changing powers. So they're all the same thing, really, you know advertising is corporate propaganda you know it's no it's it's like the, co- the corporation is a mini state it's doing the same thing as a state is uh you know like nazi germany or or britain during the war you know put out propaganda trying to keep the morale of the country going you know so they're all essentially the same techniques they're all uh working to motivate people to influence people beyond their awareness to see things in a different way it's all of it's all a form of Eng- engineering perception um and uh that's why the skills in one set one area transfer very well into another some of some people who were big in advertising in in the 60s the same area that informed you know the tv series madmen some of them had actually been involved in propaganda in the world war Two. Mm-hmm. uh and, you know, the same things as understanding psychoanalysis and Freudianism and, and human motivation and their secret yeah. desires are useful, whatever you're doing, whether it's PR... I think when
2: the word um, public relations was coined, people like Edward Bernays had thought about calling it propaganda, but it had gotten a bad name
1: from the... Yeah. Sort yeah. Of ...adventures in Nazi Germany. Yeah, I mean, but... It, it's, it's no different. What a, what a, what a politician is trying to do when they're campaigning for office, uh, is, is, uh, you know, they, they talk about creating the narrative or losing control of the narrative. Um, they talk about optics. They talk about spin. These are all terms that are not about clear, transparent sight of reality, Mm -hmm. which, you know, arguably is not possible anyway. Uh, but they're about creating effective or useful illusions and wielding them in a battle for power or market share or,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, uh, an electoral result, you know, so... Uh, and, and that's or- been
2: really important in the you know last 30 or 40 years. And I think for, maybe in many ways you can see that the things that Berry was doing were precursors to, you know... The, governments trying to manage the i think gluts in capitalism through
1: the advertising industry almost yeah i mean you're trying to you know whatever you're either trying to mobilize desire or or mobilize fear apprehension aversion those are the things that advertising works with that that propaganda works with uh in in popular music it's usually um Desire that is trying to be mobilized. You're trying to mobilize desire think, around the star.
2: If you think like Bowie, no one knew who Bowie was, and like Walter Lippmann said, you know, when when you're thinking about creating public opinion, people are so singular; they don't know everything. But Bowie established himself
1: as, you know, a star even before the fact, so he was a star. You know? Well, it's, I tried to. You know, I write about this in this chapter um, uh, in the in in Shock and All called hard to be real uh and what struck me we going through the timeline of his life is that bowie turned his career around with astonishing speed he was really washed up like he was really like tried all these different things he you know people thought he was either a one kind of a one hit wonder he put out a single that almost no one in the world knows called holy holy that was an absolute flop and was like a very poor xerox of t-rex's sound um But then within a a year of that, he not only was a star, but he was considered like a star maker. You know, he had his protégés, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed. Uh, Lou Reed, yeah. Um, He was, you know, he and his manager had this company, Main Man, that had all these other figures that were going to make stars, and they did, in fact, make Mott the Hoople stars. They had a whole raft, you know, there was talk of him doing Broadway stage stuff, making movies, you know, it's going to be a star-making empire. So he went from this washed-up figure, who couldn't even, you know, wasn't was was kind of on the downward path, and how he did it is quite remarkable. Uh, how he changed his image, um, and um, it, it shows you how malleable public opinion is. And you know, it, it was he did release some really good music that certainly helped <laughs> um, change his fortunes. But um, he had already been a sort of small star with um, Space Oddity, and then he sort of faded away. And then he managed to engineer this sort of comeback through very clever use of publicity. The, you know, the, I am gay and always have been declaration was, was huge. Uh, through an image change, he changed his styles. He, he looked very different from the sort of sixties look that everyone else had. And he had this strange hair. And, um, and then this thing of finding the manager who was able to create the company around him, main man. And, uh, and now he's like the guy with the Midas touch who's going to sort of save Lou Reed from his own declining career and and save Iggy Pop from his t- declining career and make, make them into stars. It's an extraordinary transformation. In about a year, 18 months, he completely flips it around. And it is it is a sort of great feat of this sort of uh, public relations. The propaganda of the self, I think, is how I think of, uh, of what he did. He's just completely made himself seem like the epicentre of culture again. Well, for the first time, in fact, because he'd never been that kind of figure before. So
2: that, that sort of pulls into the self as artwork and the, the proper band itself.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut it off there because we are kind of running to basically an hour and a half at this point. So uh, I do just have one final question for you, Simon, if, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you're a very well-established and highly regarded figure in music journal- journalism I was just wondering your your thoughts on the wider responsibilities of pop culture journalists and you know your thoughts on should their scope of work reach beyond simply reviewing a piece of music or film and how much it should take into account you know the, the social ongoings of the time
2: yeah especially because your career has been not just as a pop culture journalist but as a cultural commentator almost, someone who thinks about how to Bring into social theory, into the, even just little little pieces of ephemera from pop culture. You know?
1: Well, well, I, I don't know if I feel like music writers have any responsibilities. In some ways, I feel like they should be irresponsible and, and just sort of have <laughs> fun with it and do whatever they want. I mean, I happen to like doing this kind of work, and um, you know, I grew up reading writers. Uh, who use music as a prism to talk about culture and society and uh, and all kinds of things, you know, philosophy and, and stuff, and I get off on it. But I don't feel like um, not, not every kind of writing I've, I've done has been in that mode. Some of it has just been purely celebrating music or pleasure. Um, and, you know, and... And then, there's th- then, then there are things that I like as music, but I uh, have a problematic relationship with its implications politically or socially. Glam would be one example. A lot of rap music, I think, I find absolutely fascinating and thrilling. But I, you know, its attitudes to gender or materialism, I, I, I have a lot of unease with. Um, but uh, I kind of feel like there's, a, there's, a, there's a role for. Many kinds of writing, from you know, purely self-indulgent, almost memoiristic stuff, to very close inventories of the textures and pleasures of music and and how it's made, you know, and the song construction, and you know, and, and you know, kind of actually what's happening musically in music, to stuff that is um, unpicking the, the social cultural resonances of of music, uh, and there are many others ways of going about it um you know i think one thing that i would personally say that's missing a bit from music now music journalism now is is actually the the journalism bit the actual going out there and reporting things and you know getting you know getting secondary quotes and and and, or going doing field research with a subculture i think partly because it magazines can't afford to subsidize that kind of work freelance writers um you know the more interviews you do the more you have to transcribe the more uh the more time you're spending the more late you know the more labor intensive you make a piece of work the financially it, it it sort of starts to not make sense so there is a temptation to do this kind of i think of it as like informant informationalized music writing where it's all your inputs coming through the internet and you might do your interviews through email and 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 so it, it's got a lack of reality is not leaked into the work in some way. It's all data processing in, in some odd odd way. And I think there's a bit of a lack, a deficit of this sort of reported journalism, or, or particularly with dance music journalism, stuff that's based in going into clubs and living in uh, almost, anthropog- you know, author, almost anthropological research, participant observer kind of stuff. I, I feel that's a bit of a lack. But um, I'd like to see more of that. But I, 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 I kind of feel like as a, as a, um, I think, you know, uh, I think writers should, should, should sort of feel free to write about music in any way they want. I don't think there's a, a duty as such. Um, it's more about, um, I think, the idea is to have some kind of adventure with it, like an adventure in thought or an adventure in taste. Could be actual adventure in terms of exploring a subculture. They should, you know, if that's what I like. I'd like to think people are still able to have, uh, you know, with writing about music that you could actually go on a journey and and end up perhaps with different ideas than you had at the start, different experiences.
0: Um, unfortunately, that, that's all we've got time for uh, on this episode. Um, thank you so much to Simon Reynolds and to toby for joining me here today and we will be back with another episode in the near future uh from simon toby and myself goodbye Bye.
2: bye